liturgy, isn't it? I mean, that is used in Roman Catholic Christianity, Protestant Christianity, Eastern Orthodox Christianity. It's been around for forever. No one knows exactly when this started. It seems to be based on Luke 24, 34, where it says the Lord Jesus Christ is risen indeed. Uh, some have said it goes back to 480. Some have said that actually Mary Magdalene started this when she supposedly met with the emperor Tiberius. Now, in some uh, traditions, they use the saint, or the saint is accompanied with three kisses on, alternating on the cheek. And so if you want to try that this morning, feel free, go for that. Just stay away from me, but go ahead, that's all right. I'd make no... I'll make every disclaimer on that one. But um, this morning, I want to introduce you to a new liturgy. And this is uh, developed by, and I don't know how official it is, but it's developed by John Ortberg uh, at Menlo Park, a Presbyterian, kind of leaning a little bit into what he said this morning. But it's, the liturgy is called Me Too Liturgy. And this is the way it works. I will say something, then I will say all the people said, and you say, Me Too. Okay, got it. All right, let's try it. Let's just kind of practice on some sort of generic things. Um, I love my family. I spend time with my family, not as much as I need to, but there's nowhere in the world that I'd rather be than with my family. And the people said? Good. And I hope you said that even if you really don't think that, if they're sitting by you, you've got to pretend on that thing. Okay, how about this one? I love to eat. When this famished person sits down at the table and the, the, the food is prepared perfectly, and it's one of my favorite meals, and what's hot is, supposed to, is hot, and what's cold is, is cold, and the tastes all complement each other, there's just like nothing that is as good as that. I love to eat. And the people said... Yes, yes, yes. So hurry up and get done so we can get going on that one. Okay, uh, how about one more? I love football. You know, I feel bad that the season is over right now, but when it's going on, I'm filled with anticipation and excitement, and I love hanging with my friends to watch the big game, especially when it includes my favorite team, which is the Green Bay Packers, which is the best team in the NFL. And the people said, (laughs) I'll make converts of you yet. Uh, If I can't do it in a sneaky sort of way, we'll get there. Um, Easter Sunday, Ken Davis tells a, a story about a lady who's uh, uh, in her kitchen looking out the back window and she sees her German shepherd back there just shaking furiously something. And she's, what? And then she notices it's the next door neighbor's bunny. She's going, oh, no. Because she doesn't get along with this next door neighbor at all. And so she gets the broom and goes outside and bings on the dog for a little bit until it drops the, the bunny. And she picks up this very dead rabbit. And she's going, oh, what do, I, what do I do? So she goes in and she washes this thing. She bathes it. She shampoos it. She gets the blow dryer out and she, she makes it look good. And then when she thinks no one's looking, she sneaks in their neighbor's backyard and puts it back in the bunny cage and kind of closes up and just props it up. And about an hour later, she hears this terrible screaming. Ah! And she goes outside and the neighbor lady's in the backyard, kind of three feet from the cage, pointing and going, ah! And says, well, what's wrong? She said, well, the bunny died four days ago. We buried it in a box. I don't know. It's come back to life with a zombie bunny. I don't know. It's... We hear stories about the resurrection of Jesus. But we know that dead bunnies stay dead and dead people stay dead. And that seems kind of otherworldly. It's kind of... And, and even if it really happened... Really, what relevance is it to our life? The relevance, we figure, must be the once-a-year thing we get together. But in all honesty, I mean, 
if the relevance is just Sunday morning from 9 to 11, okay, but it really doesn't touch my life for the rest of the week. So what does it really, what's the meaning of, of this for me? And that's really what we want to focus on, what we want to drill on, what we want to, to come up with this morning. Now, this, this idea of, of Jesus rising from the dead, this is called good news. This is the gospel. This is good news. But to understand this good news, it's kind of counterintuitive. The very first step to understanding it is we have to back up a little, and it's kind of bad news. We have to start with hopelessness before we can get to hope. And really, the beginning, the very first step in understanding Easter is, is coming to realize and embrace the idea that I'm a mess. I'm a mess. Um, my my uh, older daughter will say it like this. She says, I'm a hot mess. And what that means is I am so out of control. I don't have a clue. It's, I can't balance. And, and maybe you feel like this. You know, I, I'm, I, I, I say that I am never going to eat anything bad for me again. Well, how long does that last, right? And then we find ourselves when no one's looking stuff in it in our, our mouth, like we're, like we're starving to death. We say, you know what, oh, oh please help me to, to be in control and not blow up here and say things I shouldn't say. And next thing we know, toxic everything is spewing out on everybody around. And, and, and we say, you know, I'm going to hold my patience with my children from this point on. Well, how long does that last, right? And, and, and we, we, we say, from this point on, I am never going to go there again or do that or click on that. I'm just not. And what happens? And, and we, we, we say, you know what, I'm going to, uh, next time one of those things come up, that situation rises again, I'm going to be bold. I'm going to confront. I'm going I'm to handle it with courage. And sure enough, we wimp out. Again, and we say, you know what? I am not going to be a person who's, who's always uh, nervous. I'm going to bring all of my issues to the Lord and pray. And then we get anxiety issues over that. We're kind of like Bob and what about Bob? You know, well, I've got problems. We've got, we've got, we've, I've got anger issues. And I've got spending issues. And I've got anxiety issues. And I've got fear issues. And I've got mouth issues. Can't seem to keep it quiet. I've got relationship issues because... I just don't know how to do it, I suppose. They always end up a mess. I've got discipline issues. I've just got problems. I'm a mess. And you need to know, if you're there, and you are, whether you know it or not, the, the greatest Christian was also there. The Apostle Paul says this in Romans 7. He says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, that I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it's sin living in me. For I know that the good itself does not dwell in me. That's in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. This idea, this understanding of I'm a mess, absolutely has to be embraced if, in fact, Easter is going to make any real sense to you. Uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. About 80 years ago, a guy by the name of Bill W., uh, hopeless drunk who's on his way to the morgue via the insane asylum and lots of damaged people, happens into this church, small little church, uh, Oxford Fellowship Church movement. It's a group of, of small churches. They were trying to get back to first century Christianity. 
And he hears them talking principles. Maybe he's never heard these before. I don't know, but they connect this time. And he takes them and he arranges them. And they lead him to sobriety. Hence, Alcoholics Anonymous was born. And and hundreds of thousands of people have found sobriety through the the 12-step program. Today, the AA boasts of over 2 million members today. But now here is the very first step, and this is so critical. The very first step says, We admitted that we were powerless over our fatal attraction to do wrong, and that our lives had become imaginable, or unmanageable. Now, this is huge, because the only step of the 12 steps that they say you have to master, there's only one step they say you absolutely have to do right, you have to hang on to, is this first step. Because if you don't come to the realization, I'm a mess, if you don't recognize that, those next 11 steps are not just, just not going to work for you. You have to realize you don't have what it takes inside. Um, it's interesting. Uh, the very first sin, very first one, Adam and Eve are hanging in the garden. You know the story. Uh, lots of, God created lots of, of things for them to eat, not McDonald's and stuff, but just cool fruit trees, and they could have all that they wanted, but there was just one, just one rule God comes up with, one tree, don't, don't mess with this one. So Adam and Eve are kind of hanging out by it one day, I'm not sure why they are, but they're hanging out by it, and Satan's right there, and he says, hey, you guys, check out this, this, this fruit on this tree, looks pretty good, you should try this one. And they say, oh, well, well. no, no, we can't, because God said we can't, even, we can't mess with this one. And Satan says, well, it kind of stinks to be you because it looks to me like this is the best in the whole garden. This other anemic fruit. But this one, wow, you can't have this one. Why do you think God said that? I know why God said that. This tree's special. This tree, if you eat of it. I mean, how do you think God got to be God? If you eat of it, you become God. And if you eat of it, you don't need a special God telling you what's right and wrong. It says that... When you eat of this, you will know the difference between right and wrong. What that means is you will be able to determine what is right and wrong. Not someone else telling you what's right and wrong for you. Well, that sounded good to Adam and Eve. So they, they, they partook. They said, yeah, okay, let's go for it. People who don't want to obey God, they want to play God, get into this whole control, management, uh, manipulation thing. And every one of us have this in our heart where we want to control. We want to control our our reputation, don't we? I mean, I share with you what I want you to see, not what I don't want you to see. Image control, we're all into this. We want to control our spouse, our, our kids, our parents, our friends. We use our words. We use a lot of nonverbal uh, in order to, to control them. And when we come across those or a situation we can't control, what do we do? Well, we run, don't we? We run, and we blame it falling apart on them. When actually, often, it's they didn't allow me to control. That was often the issue. We want, we want to control the situation. We want to play God, not obey God. Now, it's until, until one day we get hit with something that we can't control, right? We get uh, a kid who goes AWOL. Blows off everything we've said. We've got a, a, a doctor's diagnosis. That we, we've got a financial ru- ruin. We, we've got an addiction. We've got, we got something that happens that we can't control. And we realize suddenly, you know what? I'm not God. I'm a mess. I need something. 
AA, the big book, it's kind of like AA guide. They, they say this in the big book. It says, we're a group of people who would not normally mix, but there exists among us a fellowship, a friendliness, an understanding which is indescribable. We are like passengers of a great liner the moment after rescue from shipwreck when camaraderie, joyfulness, and democracy pervade the vessel from steerage to captain's table. Now, you look around. Let's look around for just a second. The one thing that unifies us, please know, is not the fact that we're all Democrats or we're all Republicans or we all voted in the last election the same way. That which unifies us is not the fact that we're all into kayaking or we all like chocolate cake or we all were born in September or we all have a certain ethnic group or we, we, we all have the same alma mater. We are as different as night and day. There's one thing that unifies us and that's the fact that we are all a mess. We are broken. We are broken. Isaiah 53 says it this way. It says, all of us like sheep have gone astray. We're a mess. Each of us has turned to our own way. We're going to play God, not obey God. And Ortberg has come up with a, a manifesto of sorts. He says, I'm a mess. On my own, I am powerless over my own ego. My life is unmanageable and I need God. Left to myself, I will waste my one and only life in stupid ways. I will damage and neglect my relationships. I will make idols of success and my reputation. I will dishonor my sexuality. I will use my words that are meant to convey truth, to deceive people. I will serve myself instead of others. Greed will rule my heart. Resentment will rule my... Uh, Resentment, greed will rule my wallet. Resentment will rule my heart. Pride will govern my choices. Ego will dominate my life. Left to myself, I will spend a pathetic existence trying to polish my outer image and hide so that no one can see what an egocentric sinner I am. I will go to my grave a respectable fraud. I'm a mess. And I need God. And the people said, Me too. Me too. Andrew Keller, or Tim Keller, writes about a guy named Andrew DeBanco. DeBanco is a uh, humanities professor at Columbia who is studying AA. He goes to an AA meeting, and Keller writes this. He says, at the meeting, he listened, uh, DeBanco, to a crisply dressed young man who was talking about his problems. In his narrative, the young man was absolutely faultless. All of his mistakes were due to injustice and betrayal of others. His every gesture betrayed his deeply wounded pride and ego. It was clear that he was trapped in his need to justify himself and that things would get worse and worse in his life until he recognized this. While he was speaking, a black man in his 40s with dreadlocks and dark shades leaned over to DeBanco and said, I used to feel that way too until I achieved low self-esteem. And DeBanco writes, this is not just a clever phrase. As the speaker bombarded us with words like, I have to take control of my life and I have to really believe in myself, the man beside me took refuge in the old Calvinistic doctrine that pride is the enemy of hope. In AA, unless you embrace this first doctrine that I'm a mess... This first step, I'm a mess. And I, I, have, I'm, I cannot control. I'm unmanageable. My life is unmanageable. There's no hope. In Christianity, unless you embrace this first doctrine, it's the doctrine of depravity, that I'm a mess. I, now, one of the things that helps us realize, or, or not realize, think we're not a mess, is we compare ourselves, right? 
And who do we always compare ourselves to? We were talking about this the other day in my house. Compare ourselves to Adolf Hitler. You know, Hitler, is this, this guy, he's dead a long time, but he's the poster child for evil, right? And, and I'll tell you what, I haven't killed all those people, and I'm not that wicked and mean and deceptive, and I, I'm doing okay compared to Hitler, maybe, yeah. But let's compare you to God's standard for just a second. Ten commandments, right? Just ten. Uh, but let's not look at all ten. Let's look at six of them. First one is, God says, you shall not have no other gods before me. Which means, if you, have you ever had anything in your life more important to you than God? If so, you're an idolater. Number three, it says, you shouldn't use the Lord your God's name in vain. Have you ever used God's name as a swear word? Now, I know that the command means more than that, but it certainly doesn't mean less than that. If you have used God's name improperly, Scripture would say you're a blasphemer. Number six, this is, you, know, you shall not kill. We say, okay, I've nailed that one. No, no, no. Jesus would say, when he interprets this command in the Sermon on the Mount, that it's not just the physical thing. He would say, if you've hated anybody, if you've disliked them so much that you've called them a name, then you've murdered them in your heart. You're a murderer in Jesus' eyes. Have you ever done this? You're a murderer. Seven is don't commit adultery. Well, uh, Jesus again would say, it's not just the act. It's in your mind. Have you ever lusted? If so, Christ would say, you are an adulterer. Number eight is don't steal. Have you ever stolen anything? A thief. Number, number, number nine, uh, don't lie. Have you ever lied? You're a liar. This is, this is important. The best of us in here today are an idolater, a blasphemer, a murderer, an adulterer, a thief, and a liar. That's the best. I am an idolater, a blasphemer, a murderer, an, an adulterer, a liar, and a thief. And the people said, me too. We are. Now, just, just think for a second. Somebody who's a, who's a real good person, and they only blow it three times a day. And, you know, this is interesting because Scripture says that sin also is when you know to do good and you don't do it. So if you can get through three, a day with only sinning three times, that's pretty doggone good. But, but let's say you're really, really good, and you can make it through a day only blowing it three times. Um, that's, what, 21 times a week. We're dealing with, what, 100 times a month, 1,000 times a year, roughly. You, you, you live to your 70 years old. That's 70,000 sins. Can you imagine going to court with 70,000 counts against you? Some of them, these are not all parking tickets, some of them are um, murder and rape and robbery? What is going to happen to you? We need to keep this in mind. We are a mess. We are in deep, deep trouble. Now, this doesn't go away. It's real important for us to understand this doesn't just go away once we become Christians. We can become Christians and now we, don't, we still can be a mess. Um, Richard Moore said this. He said, Christians are usually sincere and well-intentioned people until you get to any real issues of ego, control, power, money, pleasure, and security. Then they tend to be pretty much like everybody else. The, the, the solution is not try harder. We're well, just going to buckle down and by golly, we're gonna, we've already tried this. This does not work. This is why we're the mess. I want to show you a text that I dare say you probably have never seen on Easter Sunday before, but let me give you a little background. First 11 chapters of the Bible. They've got lots of stories, Noah and the Ark, lots of, lots of cool stories in there. But here's 
the goal, the bottom line of those first 11 chapters, why they're there. They are there to show you and I that we are a mess, that, that we know, but we continue to go back to our, our, our sin, our mess. We can't stop. It's just kind of who we are. It's, it's, we're, we're a mess. Chapter 12, God shows up to this man who's worshiping who knows what. He's a pagan sort of guy. His name is Abram. And God comes to him and says, Abram, I'm going to be your God. And you're going to be my people. And God makes him some incredible promises uh, for forever, significance, just some incredible promises. One is you're going to be the father of a huge nation. And so uh, Abraham is saying, wow, this is, this is fantastic. Fast forward a little bit to chapter 15, and we read this. God, he said to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur, the Chaldees, to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? Now, here's the deal. Uh, Abraham, just a little bit earlier, he, his issue with God is not anything to do with God. He said, God, you're great. I, I, no, no question there. You're fine. You're wonderful. But my problem is with me. Because you said, God, that I would be the father of a huge nation, but you need to know, I'm like almost 100, and my wife is almost 90. I need like five minutes on sex. I don't need a whole series on it. And I, I, I'm telling you, I don't know how I'm going to be able to fulfill my obligations. I don't think I can do what I'm supposed to do in order to make this work. It's just not working, God. And so God says to him, bring to me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him. He cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Now, you notice that God did not say to them, to Abram, what to do with the pieces. Abraham just knew what to do with the pieces, uh, with, with the animals. He just knew to cut them in half because this was a very common ancient uh, culture when you wanted to enter into a, a contract, a covenant. You didn't sign your name on a piece of paper. I mean, what a stupid thing. What, what bearing does that have? You got, it was just pretty beefy. This was pretty real. And so you took these animals, cut them in half, and then you walked between the half. And what you, you were saying in doing such was, may what happened to these animals happen to me. If I don't keep my end of the bargain. And, and sometimes what would happen, this, is, this was common, sometimes the, the, the sovereign uh, would, would walk between the pieces, saying basically, hey, what happened to these animals happened to me if I don't keep my end of the bargain, you know, keeping you safe and providing for you and yada yada. And then he made the vassal walk between them. And the vassal was saying, may what happened to these animals happen to me if I don't keep my end of the bargain, if I am not loyal to you all the time and faithful to you, then may what happened to these happen to me. Sometimes the king decided, I'm not walking through because, for crying out loud, I'm the king, I don't have to. And he would make the vassal walk through anyway. And the vassal would have to walk through saying, may what happened to these pieces happen to me if I'm not loyal to you to all ends, to, to the end. But notice what this is so interesting. God blows out a lot of culture here. Because he passes through the pieces, the fire. This a typical picture in scripture of God. You know, Moses in the burning bush. And, and the fire is often a picture of God. God passes through, but God does not make Abram pass through. So God is saying as he goes through, may what happened to these, these animals happen to me 
if I don't come good on the promises I'm making to you. And then because he didn't make Abram go through there, this is huge, don't miss this, he was going through for Abram. In other words, he was saying, and may what happened to these animals happen to me if you don't keep good on your part of the deal. If you are disloyal to me, then may what happened to these pieces happen to me. Fast forward several thousand years. This is what happened, right? I mean, Abraham was a mess. He lied. He put his wife in jeopardy. He was an adulterer. Jesus recognizes that everybody is a mess. He knows the covenant that he made. He says it's time. So he comes to earth. He's in Gethsemane. He's, 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 he's come for this very purpose. And in Gethsemane, Peter takes his little sword and tries to defend Jesus. And Jesus says this in, in Matthew 26. He says, put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do, do you think that I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way. Now, what scripture is Jesus pointing back to? Could be several, but I am convinced that, no doubt, Genesis 15 is one of them. He says, I've got to do this, Peter. You don't want me, but I've already made the deal that if you were a mess, which he was, and Abram was a mess, and all of his followers were a mess, which we are, that I've got to go down this road. And so the next day, they, they took him. And after they humiliated him, spit on him and beat him, they took the flagon, you know, the, the, the whip, cat of nine tails, leather strands. At the end, there's balls of lead. In the middle of it, pieces of, of glass and, and bone. And they took the skin off of his back, backside. Uh, they, they pulled his arms out of socket just as they nailed him to the cross. And then after he was dead, to make doubly sure, they put that spear up into his heart just to make sure he was dead. They took Jesus down. They put him in 100 pounds of, of, of cloth and resin, and kind of mummified him, put him into a tomb, and rolled the stone shut. Dead rabbits don't come back to life. Dead people don't come to life. And Jesus was very dead. And when Jesus died on the cross, he died because I am a hot mess. He died for every uh, time I was silent when I shouldn't have been silent because I really knew what the truth was, but I allowed the people to believe something that wasn't true because it made me look better. He died for, for every messed up relationship that I've been a part of messing up. He, he died for every squandered opportunity that I'd, for every wasted portion of my life chasing stupid things or every wasted part of my life where I'm seeking my own glory, my own honor, my own name for every bit of, of lust and bitterness and gossip and godlessness that I've participated in for every bit of lust and bitterness and gossip and godlessness that I help other people participate in I wish to say there wasn't a whole lot of that but that wouldn't be true for every bit of dishonesty for, for, for every time that, that I straight up blew it, uh, Christ died. I mean, all, not just some of, of it, all of it. He died for me because I couldn't keep my end of the bargain. And the people said, and he died for you as well. But that's not the end of the story, right? If that was the end of the story, we'd be pretty sad, actually. And Luke chapter 24 says, On the first day of the week, 
Very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and they went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. That that Easter evening, now in verse 36, it says, while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And they were startled and frightened, thinking that they saw a ghost. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your mind? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And so when Christ rose from the dead, this is so huge because what this was was proof that when he died for my sins, all of my sins, not one left uncovered, when he died for them, that payment was accepted. When he, all of my sin is gone by, by his resurrection. When he rose from the dead... The wrath of the Father that was against me as a sinner was, was gone. It was, it was depleted. My part in hell, my place in hell that was reserved for me in hell was gone. When, when he rose from the dead, I got a new name and a new identity and a new father and a new family and a new purpose in life. And even though I am still a hot mess often, at least the spiritual mess is cleaned up and I am his child. And God's people said... Me too, yes, yes. Now maybe you're here and you know, you're, you, you, you know all about this. You've heard all, you've got all the facts down. Yes, one day there was a Jesus who was God and he left heaven. And one day he came down to earth and he was born of a virgin and he lived. And then one day they crucified him. And then three days later he rose from the dead. And then 40 days later he ascended back up into heaven after showing himself to 500, to 500 people. And he said that one day he was going to return, got all the facts down. And you got it. You understand all that. But you've never committed your life to it. Let me give you an illustration. There was a, a gal who was wrestling with this idea of Christ and, and salvation and committing my life to him and all. And so she took a year to study this out. Then at, at the end of the year, she, she, she realized, you know, it's not about... Information, because I think I understand it all now. It's not about the credibility of the information, because I'm pretty sure this is true. I've got a commitment issue, though. And so for her, what she did is she went into her house where the kitchen meets the living room. She was standing on the linoleum, and she was looking at the carpet, the line right there. And she prayed, and she said, Lord, thank you for dying for me. And in just a moment, I'm going to take a step over this line. And when I do, I want you to know, God, that I'm leaving everything past behind. I'm tired of playing God. I want to obey you. I'm sorry for all I've done. Would you forgive me? Would you help Jesus to be alive in me? And then she took that step. She said she has never looked back. Life has has never been the same. And maybe you are still in the kitchen. You've got all the information down. You know it all. But as far as committing your life, ah, that's a different issue. And so let me ask you, have you ever done that you need to i suppose it all stems back to that understanding of, of whether or not you really believe you're a hot mess if you are are, are are in desperate need of god 
if you, if you realize that, you can trust in him even right now. Bow your heads with me for just a second. And just between you and God, because he hears your, your thoughts, he hears your heart. Maybe right now you're still standing in the kitchen, but you can step over the line. You can just say that to him in your own heart. Lord, thank you for dying for me. I'm sorry for my plain you, my trying to be in control. You, you, you know what a mess I am. But now I give you my life. I claim your forgiveness. I want to be about obeying you. Would you, would you help me, Lord? And if you were to say that to him, you need to know that you just stepped over the line. Thank you, Lord. Amen.